Island Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium. 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible in part by support from our sponsors, the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whitby Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. On today's episode, Helen Roundhill will be reading The Cast List by Scott Kaiser. Afterwards, Helen will share a few thoughts in response to the story. Then, Scott and ISF Artistic Director Alina Hodges will discuss Scott's inspiration for the story, as well as his experience with the play from which the story is derived. So sit back and enjoy this tale from the Vomitorium. The Cast List by Scott Kaiser Read by Helen Roundhill Toby and Andy, both seniors at Elaria High School, were waiting together near the call board for the cast list to go up. What's the point? I never get cast, said Toby. Me neither. The whole process is rigged, said Andy. Why do we even bother? asked Toby. Because we love being rejected, said Andy. Both girls had a good laugh over that, knowing that it was partially true. Look, here comes Mallory, said Toby, looking down the long green corridor. Mallory, carrying a heavy blue backpack over one shoulder, her long brunette hair flowing gracefully behind her, was headed toward the call board. She's waiting for the cast list to go up, too, said Andy. Look how confident she is, said Toby enviously. God, she's so arrogant, said Andy with a scoff. Yeah, like she has no doubt at all that she'll get the lead. Well, because she usually does. Let's have some fun, said Toby devilishly. What kind of fun? asked Andy. We'll pretend that we know she's going to be cast as Viola, offered Toby. And when she doesn't, she'll come crashing down. Oh, that's good. That's very good, said Andy. Right, said Toby. Here she comes, said Andy. Stand over here where she can hear us but not see us, directed Toby. Toby and Andy moved to the far side of the corridor behind the set of lockers where they could be heard but not seen by Mallory. Mallory, approaching the call board, took a look at the empty space, checked her phone for the time, threw her backpack to the ground, and sat down on the wide windowsill nearby to wait. That's when Toby and Andy brought the curtain up on their little play. Is the cast list up yet? asked Toby, winking at Andy. No, not yet, said Andy, nodding. But it's almost noon, so it should be up soon. What's the point? We already know who will be playing Viola, 
Mallory's the obvious choice. Mallory is so talented and so beautiful and so kind. Mallory's ears pricked up when she heard her name. Despite herself, she looked up from her phone to listen. But more importantly, Mr. Levin loves Mallory, said Andy. Mr. Levin picked the play for Mallory, said Toby. Mr. Levin wants to make a baby with Mallory, exclaimed Andy. They both laughed silently, covering their mouths and enjoying the joke enormously. Anyway, don't tell anyone, said Toby. But when I was in Mr. Levin's office, I saw the list on his desk. You did? That's crazy, replied Andy. I know, right? So tell me, who's playing Viola? Who do you think? Mallory, they said in unison, having another good laugh. Of course, who else would play it, said Andy. Shakespeare practically wrote the role for her, exclaimed Toby. The bell rang abruptly for the noon lunch period. That's when Mallory walked up to the call board, took two pins off the board, and posted the cast list herself. Wait, what are you doing, Mallory? asked Toby. Posting the cast list for Twelfth Night, said Mallory. But why have you been sitting there, then? asked Andy in disbelief. Oh, Mr. Levin said to wait for it to be noon exactly, said Mallory. But how did you get your hands on the cast list? demanded Toby. Oh, I didn't audition for the show. I'm the assistant director, said Mallory, walking away cheerfully. When Toby and Andy looked at the list, neither of them had been cast. That was The Cast List, read by Helen Roundhill, recording from their home in Seattle, Washington. You may remember their performance as Viola in ISF's 2018 production of Twelfth Night. Here are a few thoughts Helen had after reading this story. This story was actually pretty hard for me to read. I mean, in, in spite of all of the nastiness, I really have a lot of empathy for Toby and Andy. I teach this age group. I, I teach dance in a musical theater program, and my students are junior high to high school. It's an incredibly competitive program. I mean, they have to audition to get in. They have to work hard to stay in. They have to work e even harder to advance. And the vast majority of my students are young women or are femme presenting. And there is a, a real dearth of roles written for them as opposed to the roles written for men. And so the competition only ramps up higher. But a major component of the program, and what I work on with them a lot, is instilling the idea that creating theater is an act of community. We are coming together to create magic. And as actors, we stand out in the heat of the lights and we breathe air charged with the energy of an audience. 
and we allow a character to tell a story through us. And really, Toby and Andy, they just want a taste of that. They can do all of the supplementary work, the the voice lessons, the dance lessons, the analysis. But the thing about theater is that the best way to improve is to do it. Toby and Andy want that opportunity. So every time that there is an audition, they go and they hope against hope that this time they get to be a part of the magic. And time after time, they stand in front of the cast list and see that they didn't get cast. And their disappointment and humiliation are public. And even though they may act like they don't care, something like that can be life and death to a team. So these two sit on the sidelines and and they watch their cohorts improve and grow while they stagnate and fall further behind. And sure, maybe it's because there are more talented people in their class. Maybe they're just never the right fit. Or maybe it really is the way that they perceive it, that others are just better liked. And it's very easy to allow that kind of experience to embitter you. In this way, I I actually feel like Toby and Andy are a better allegory for Malvolio than Mallory is. Mallory enjoys preferential treatment and elevated status throughout. and, and, And ultimately, she gets the last word. Whereas Toby and Andy are striving for more, but know that they will never be a part of the inner circle. As a snapshot of the worst behavior that unfettered competition can foster in a young person, I think this is very successful. I mean, it's very easy to dislike Toby and Andy from their poorly conceived plot to their mean-spirited comments. We're seeing them at their worst. But there's so much more at work. I think it's very easy to be dismissive of the teenage experience. After all, being an adult is so much harder in many ways. But in many ways, being a teenager is, is just as difficult. You don't have the, the perspective and the life experience to deal with things with the maturity of an adult. So my ardent hope is that my students who have been taught to celebrate each other's victories and to mourn each other's losses, I hope they never feel diminished to the point of lashing out this way. I hope that in spite of disappointment, and disappointment will come, that they remain kind and find creative ways to continue to be a part of the magic and maybe make magic of their own. The way we've all had to do this year. If I can, and I would very much like to, I'd like to give a shout out to my students. I know that as their dance teacher, I will never know everything that's going on in their lives. But every time they come to class, they put so much pressure on themselves and they work so hard. And, you know, I'm incredibly, incredibly proud of them. We'd be Telecom. Connecting our community. We exist to make internet, phone, security, and entertainment technology simple and worry-free 
so our customers can live better, happier lives. So, live the life. We'll connect it. Thank you all for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium. Today, we've just heard the cast list read by Helen Roundhill. Scott is with us to chat about the cast list and the play uh, on which it is based. Scott, welcome. Hi, Alina. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very happy to be with you again. I'm wondering if you can tell us to start off with a little bit about the inspiration behind this story. Well, so many of us started off uh, in theater in high school. So uh, for most theater people have their own uh, high school stories. Um, and uh, I started to think about just the drama of uh, and the politics of casting in high school. So uh, that's where this comes from. Uh, I remember very well uh, the just the how fraught it was to wait for the the cast list to go up and how nervous people got and how anxious and uh, so that uh, was the inspiration for the setting here this idea of uh, um, a, a high school situation and of course there's always a feeling that someone's being favored in a high school situation that there's always a one star of the starlet so uh, the story very much includes that dynamic that uh, um, the idea that there's there's always that one person who gets cast and uh, the jealousy that's involved in high school when you don't get the lead and you're constantly you know, not cast or get the secondary roles. So that's very much a part of the story as well. Oh, certainly. I It, it brought back many memories for me of <laughs> uh, being that person always getting cast and also it, then going to SOU and never being that person ever getting cast. <laughs> so... Uh, I was had a fun time kind of remembering all of those scenarios and and reading it. I immediately the picture in my mind was the SOU theater building hallway and like I can see the the board on which the cast list would be posted and it it was visceral. <laughs> oh yes, that was in my mind as well when I wrote it. Uh, that the way that uh, that board uh, is very much in a public place. And there's no way you can walk up to that board and have a private response to the posting. <laughs> no, it's so awful. It is just torture. And I don't like it doesn't need to be that way anymore. We all have email. We have to have email for college. Like, can we please just not have the moment of humiliation or celebration where someone else is watching the celebration who has just been humiliated? It's just like it's terrible. Those traditions die very hard. I, I can't I imagine a situation where um, a theater program or a high school program decides to do away with the, the casting call board. <laughs> it's part of the hazing, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Horrible. Horrible. I, um, <laughs> I was uh, also, you know, the film version of, uh, of Twelfth Night, uh, that uh, I imagine a lot of people have seen. Uh, She's the man. Do you do you remember it? Um, yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, was mid two thousands, two thousand six, something like that. Um, and uh, you know, Amanda Bynes is in that, and and uh, a young Channing Tatum, and uh, right. Um, and of course, it's you know, it's this high school uh, situation, but. Uh, <laughs> It's it's a it's I have to say it's one of my favorite film versions of a kind of a Shakespeare adaptation. 
<laughs> if you don't know it's Twelfth Night, then it just rolls off you. But when you know it's Twelfth Night, it's it's just hilarious. Uh, and of course, that's a high school setting as well, which um, I'm, I'm sure it was somewhere in my head when I wrote this. That's so funny. I'm going to have to give that another watch. <laughs> oh, Amanda Bynes is hilarious. She is. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. She she is. Um, of course, this this story brings forth uh, the 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 making fun of Malvolio in Twelfth Night and and that um, setting that up. Um, can you talk a little bit about that piece of the inspiration? That scene. Well, I actually played Malvolio. The only time I've ever done this play as an actor was in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I think it was 1989. Um, it was, we were performing under a tent in uh, Georgia. There was no air conditioning. So it was a very, very tough experience for me. Uh, and I was not a good Malvolio. Uh, I was terribly miscast and, uh, I really suffered with it all summer long. Uh, especially I remember that the, uh, costume designer was a bit of a masochist and put me, uh, in, uh, in a wool jacket, uh, which I was wearing in, you know, Atlanta heat in the oh, 90s and communities. It was just <laughs> miserable. Um, but mainly I remember not being a very good Malvolio um, and, uh, you know, really feeling for myself just how um, Malvolio doesn't particularly get um, of, of too much, I think, of a fair shake there. Um, so I, I have a, I, have a, I know I, maybe I'm weird, but I have a certain level of sympathy for Malvolio ever since that experience. Um I've never been uh, one for hazing or teasing or uh, that kind of uh, behavior in school settings anyway. So um, so that was very much in my mind when, when I wrote the piece that uh, um, the idea that uh, playing a prank, which I've, I've never liked pranks or jokes or those kinds of things, uh, I always feel, always feel kind of mean to me. Um, so yeah, this, the story is very much about a, a prank that kind of backfires. Yeah, it, it always... It's so sad in the play when I, it never feels like there's quite enough scolding of the bullies. You know, they're they're all delightful and clowny in their own in their own rights, but it's such a mean thing that they do to someone who, yes, has you know put obstacles in the way of their celebrating, but it feels too far. I, I like I said I played the role. I tend to agree that, I, and uh, when I directed the piece, I tried to mitigate that. I directed it at SOU, as a matter of fact. Um, I think that was in 2005, and uh, it was a pretty heavy cutting. Um, I, I, in fact, uh, cut the entire Sertopa scene uh, because that's where it feels, I think, the cruelest. Um, and I understand that Shakespeare's making fun of the Puritans and, uh, that's why it goes as far as it does. Um, but I think in a modern context, we don't always get that, oh, this is Shakespeare to making fun of the Puritans, uh, for closing the theaters. Uh, so right. uh, I didn't feel badly about taking that scene out. And in fact, absolutely nobody came up to me afterwards and said, you know, gee, I missed the Sertopus scene. Nobody, nobody said a, a thing about it. It's hard to find it funny to me. I I wouldn't. We didn't cut it in our production, but I wouldn't have missed it. I don't think. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't find it funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Orion played fe- who Orion who is um, editing this uh, at some point as as we speak, uh, and um, 
is our composer and sound engineer played Feste beautifully. Um, but that scene is, it's tough. Yeah, it's troublesome. Um, and of course, we're bringing our modern sensibilities to it. And But uh, what else can we do? Right, right. Um, what have been some of the favorite productions of Twelfth Night that you've worked on? Well, you know, it's funny because when people talk about this play, they talk about it being, you know, a flawless play and being director proof. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Laughing and I know why. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. um, Because I don't believe the play is director proof. um, And I don't know how far to go, but but of course, um, uh, I think the, there was a production of the festival, I think recently that ran three hours. And in my mind, that was, um, that was, you know, one way you can, I think, do damage to the play. It doesn't really hold up for three hours. Um, in fact, streamlining is, is far more important than, than, you know, ex- extending it and expanding it. It's not Hamlet. Um, you know, it's not King Lear. So, um, I do think that the play is is not director proof. It it can be damaged. Um, f- for me, I have to say, my the best time I ever had on it was when I directed it myself because uh, uh, I put in a lot of music that uh, that was fun. It was modern music. I put in uh, um, you know mostly love songs that characters would sing or Fessy would sing, and uh, um, and also oddly that was one of the few times that so you did, did an experiment with dinner theater. Did you know that? No, it, it was presented as dinner theater. Um, so uh, it was one of the very few times. So and that also made it fun. People were kind of having their desserts and drinking champagne and uh, during the show and they got a little tipsy and it was great fun. <laughs> that sounds really fun. I had no idea that they ever tried. Was it in the on the main stage? It was on the main stage. But this is weird. They built the set in the auditorium. And dinner was served on the stage. They turned the entire thing up backwards. Oh. Was that part of your idea for the show? Or did they bring that to you and they were like, this is how we're doing it? That was brought to me. I, I had no choice. That was that was something that was brought to me. Uh, and once I knew it was going to be dinner theater, I decided, well, I'm going to cut it very, very heavily. And I'm going to replace some, some of the dialogue with modern songs. So, um, uh and uh, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. It wasn't a musical per se, but I had some really gifted musical actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, my best day played the accordion and he played the guitar and I had an actor who played the banjo and um, I, I just got really lucky with actors. So it was just full of uh, m- singing and music and accompaniment and uh, it was it was great fun. Now, I don't mean to be boasting about my own production, but, uh, um, but you asked me what was my favorite and I have to say that was the most fun I ever had on the play. I think something that that always strikes me about Twelfth Night is the sort of flip side of all the comedy is this real melancholy in this like, which we tried to lean into with our production, the post-holiday like come down. And I just and, you know, there's many people grieving losses or grieving unrequited love. And it's a really I think I don't know if it's. I mean, I agree it's not director proof, but but I think it's also with the right mining of it, it's so layered. Oh, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I do think that one of the major themes of the play is grief and, and how one overcomes grief. Um, and uh, you, even though it's a comedy and you really have to lean into the comedy, it's it's very helpful for a director to remember that 
as you say, there's been a shipwreck, a brother has been lost, uh, two, you know, two brothers have been lost actually. Um, and it's, it's, it is about, uh, overcoming grief, um, in its essence. Um, and, uh, and I think directors need to remember that. Definitely. And using comedy to do so. I mean, Feste is employed to cheer Olivia up, really. Like, there's so much, there's so much of that, I think. It's, can be really, really beautiful and poignant. And then at the end, especially when, when everything is, is revealed and all the mistaken identities and stuff all, all come to light. It's, you know, like Comedy of Errors, that payoff is so wonderful. You know, if you look at the play in terms of, uh, you know, the theme of grief, you certainly um, you can say that uh, the ending is about, you know, life is for the living. Um, and uh, Sir Toby is the embodiment of that. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any major traps that you feel like Twelfth Night holds? Traps? How interesting. Um well, I, th- I think I've talked about uh, a, a little of them that you can get a little too clever by half uh, um, and uh, not trust the play, add a lot. Uh, uh, as I said, I, I think, you know, as we've talked about before, OSF, this is one of the things that happens at Oregon Shakespeare is that um, sometimes there's just too much stuff thrown at a play. The, the pockets are too deep. The designers are too ambitious and directors get a little bit... Um, like uh, you know, children uh, with a with a deep toy box, uh, and as we talked about, one of the things I like about Island Shakespeare is that uh, um, the kind of a stripped down approach means that it, we're going to hear the language and we're going to hear the story. Um, and as I say, one of the traps I think that that OSF fell into recently was just throwing way, way, way too much stuff at it, uh, letting it go long, letting it get bogged down. Um, and uh, as I say, that that I think that is one of the big traps that uh, that you can fall into. Um, I want to loop back around to the character of Malvolio just briefly before we wrap this up. Um, you mentioned the making fun of the Puritans and the closing of the theaters, and I would love if you could just give us a little bit of that historical context. Well, um, uh, you know, I'm not uh, fresh on this, but of course Malvolio is uh, is very much, uh, they refer to him as a Puritan. Um, and of course the, uh, you know, the theaters were under a constant uh, you know, constant threat of being censored, shut down, um, having productions uh, f- uh, closed, and uh, the companies uh, suffered under that uh, that heavy weight of censorship, religious censorship, uh, for a great deal of uh, Shakespeare's career. So uh, Malvolio was very much a, a symbol of that, and uh, that's partially why they have a, a, a great uh, a great time, uh, you know. Uh, making fun of him, and of course, Sir Topis is a, is a religious figure making fun of Malvolio. That's just uh, giving back uh, uh, as well as they get from the, the Puritans. So it does explain why they, they mistreat Malvolio so so completely. Uh, that, you know that that is that is the context that you, you have to remember when you when you watch the play. Awesome! Thank you so much for that. Wonderful. Well, we will talk to you next week. That'll be great, Alina. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 Short Stories by Scott Kaiser. Sound design and composition by Orion Schwalm. This episode was sponsored in part by the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Whidbey Telecom, and by our listeners. 
Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org.